For years, Andy Stanley's been trying to massage his congregation away from Holy Scripture, and this year I think he's actually taken the big step. We'll see what that's all about. This is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms. I don't need a book to prop up my faith. I, I don't need you to explain creation to me to prop up my faith. The foundation of your faith and mine is not a book. It is an event. That the Bible did not create Christianity. Christians eventually created the Bible. All right, so the hits just keep on coming with the resurrection. We covered a little bit of Sam Harris and Bart Ehrman. I make a circle back to that. There's just a number of things that would be a lot of fun to just tear apart in that the whole exchange. Now, granted... I'll give you this is this is a couple of atheists getting together talking. You, you know how it goes. You get together with your Christian friends. You straw man other people's arguments. But I mean, let's face it. Sam Harris has got millions of viewers, so it's not exactly the best place to kind of have a casual con- conversation about these things. Be the best thing to bring forth the best arguments. Unfortunately, the best arguments are so um, are such the minority report among Christians, and that and that's really the problem with a lot of these guys is. What they understand of Christianity is a perverted version of it, and that's all they know, and that's all they see. I mean, you, you look at the most popular, the, the the biggest names in Christianity. This this is the kind of tripe they put forth, and they pay the price for it in in the in the intellectual realms. It's it's just not uh, something that that stands up. Now, compare that. We've got Andy Stanley. Uh, I, I should really make it a habit of just going to listen to his sermons uh, around Easter time because this is really usually when he does this sort of thing. And I was too busy with uh, probably some intellectual dark web stuff to even care about that. Or well, even the the, the T4G conference was probably taking priority over that. But um, uh, but the thing of it is is so in my Bible class I teach the teens about how to defend the resurrection historically, and I think Stanley can do that. I think Stanley for uh, fully affirms the resurrection and calls it the foundation of Christianity, but he uses the resurrection to reason away from Scripture instead of reasoning toward it, which is a really bizarre move to make. And, and we're going to see kind of how he does that. But first, but first, we've got to talk about the Kenya Well Project. As you heard last week, we had uh, Monica Ocholo on talking about uh, the uh, Kibos Hope Academy and and what's going on there and and how much a well would help them I, you know it would just really be one of those big dominoes that would uh, really help the children be able to focus more on their studies um, and get get the education they need and when they get that the education they need in a country like Kenya when you have that you're a commodity I mean, it's a little like it was. Uh, really when the college craze came around that's kind of dying off in America I mean I make a living as a truck driver I spent more money than I care to tell you, uh, getting a college education that I don't, I don't need, don't use really, except to do the podcast and write a little bit. But, um, but in Kenya, it's a big deal. It's a big deal to have that education because it's almost a guaranteed, guaranteed way out of poverty there in the United States. Getting out of poverty is pretty simple, Honestly, I mean, we can, we can talk about this another time, maybe when we bring up that subject, but, uh, you know, People on the left kind of uh, talk about how, oh, well, we can't ask these uh, poor victims to to kind of bootstrap themselves out of out of poverty, and really, bootstrapping doesn't even enter into it. You know, according to the data 
all you have to do really is three things. Graduate high school, wait before wait to have kids before you're married and, and get and keep a job and you will not live in permanent poverty in the United States. And I keep going back to this race thing, but it's something that's really infuriating me. The data out there shows that that married intact black families uh, live I think I probably brought this this statistic up a couple of times, but they 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 there's not a the percentage between married intact black families and married intact white families living in poverty, uh, when you compare the two, actually there's more intact white families living in poverty than black families in the United States. Just just the statistics, you know, kind of do that, do with what you want. But but the point being that uh, in Kenya, this this is the thing that that breaks the cycle of poverty, because the the families, as I understand it. Once stuff kind of gets to a certain point, stay intact. Now they they have they do have a problem with promiscuity there and AIDS and uh, these sorts of things. That's st- that's still a major problem in, in Africa. Uh, but for the most part, that's not their major issue. Their major the major hurdle they need to jump over is getting that education. And if we drill this well, if we get this done, and, and people, we can do it. I mean, we could have this we can have this thing done this week. If every one of you that download and listen to this podcast just give fifty bucks to the Kenya Well Project, that's it. It could be done. We could send the money, have the well drilled, and they would have this. And this is going to uh, secure the, these children's educations uh, and, and break that cycle of poverty there. And again, if you didn't listen last week and you missed Monica, go listen to that, and she can describe everything to you. Uh, you know how that's going to uh, affect things there. So please, please do give. $50, all, all we're asking, one-time donation. We're not asking you to give you know, $25 to sponsor a kid every month. Nothing nothing of that nature. We're just asking that you give this one-time $50 to these children. Check it out on our website, laymanstermsradio.org, the Kenya Well Project. We've got all the photos, all the information up there. Um, we should have some financial information forthcoming from from Monica on this that we're going to put up there as well. You can kind of see their expenses and the, and the different things that they have to overcome to, uh, uh, to, to make the, the school work there. All right. So also let me remind you, listen to us on KNNA, the cross in Nebraska, also on pirate Christian radio are still on there. Got to get that in. I haven't gotten that one in in a few weeks, but there it is. And uh, so, yeah, we're to Andy Stanley now. And like I said, he's going to basically, argue from the resurrection away from scripture and that just absolutely makes no sense and we're going to talk about that and talk about where i think he's he's trying to steer north point i think he's done it a lot more craftily at the end of the day i'm convinced that andy stanley is just a more reserved version of rob bell um and I, and I may be sinning saying that. That may be, may be not putting the best construction on what Andy Stanley is doing, but it's the likely, likely construction. Um, it just seems like little by little by little, he's moving the needle at North Point to turn it into kind of a postmodern emergent type of church in, in, in that kind of vein of Rob Bell. 
except he he knows when he can take certain steps and when he can't. He's being a little more wise about it rather than coming out with a book like Love Wins, There's No Hell, these sorts of things that that he knows will get him ousted. He moves the congregation little by little by little, and he does it in a very crafty way. He's very wise about these things. And so we're going to see that, and uh, it's a fairly long sermon. We're going to try to get as much of it in as we can here so we won't gild the lily any further. So here we go. I'm really, really, really excited about uh, these next three weeks. The name of the series is Aftermath. And before we jump into the content, I just want to say one thing. If you gave up on Christianity because of something in the Bible or something about the Bible, something that was actually in the Bible or something you heard or read about the Bible, um, you may have given up on Christianity unnecessarily. In fact, if you're somebody who's saying, you know what, I'm still in because my wife makes me come to church or my girlfriend makes me come to church, or my boyfriend drags me to church, but honestly, I'm kind of leaning for the door. I've got my, I'm about to put my hand on the handle to say, hey, I'm out of here. And it's because of something in the Bible or something about the Bible, something you've heard, somebody told you, something you read. I want you to know that you don't have to leave. And so for the next three weeks, we're gonna talk about a little bit about why that is. And here's something to keep in mind as we begin the series. Jesus' most devout followers, Jesus' most devout first century followers never owned a Bible, never read a Bible. They couldn't have read the Bible if there was a Bible because most of them couldn't read and there was no Bible to read. Okay, that's almost completely false. There was a Bible to read. It was called what we would call the Old Testament. And of of course, the, the copies of the Old Testament were were kept at a synagogue or a temple and that sort of thing. Maybe some more wealthy of, of Jesus's followers, and there were some wealthy ones, might have owned copies of the scrolls. Um, but the notion that, and most of Jesus's first followers were Jewish. They, they weren't Gentile. We see some incidents uh, of Gentile, Gentile followers, but by and large in the Gospels, we see most of Jesus' earliest followers were Jewish. And the Jewish tradition is one of rich education. They Now, largely, they, they might have memorized Holy Scripture, uh, but, but something they did was, was read and write. This was something that was commanded by God for the, for the prophets to do on occasion. It was commanded to Moses to write these things down. And so when these things were written down, uh, presumably the language was passed on to the children. And this is something, you know, the education of the children in the faith was something that was very rich. And there's, there's all kinds of re, um, good academic research to show that first century Jews more than likely weren't illiterate. Uh, even even at, at the, the lowest levels uh, of the social, socioeconomic echelon, they, they could, they did, in fact, learn how to read. Um, a, a lot of them, and on top of that, um, if you were if you were a fisherman, even though that was a, that was a lowly job, you were you were a merchant, and a lot of times you were required to learn how to speak Greek because that was that was the trade language of the day, and sometimes you were even it even necessitated you writing it. So again, this is not something I'm I'm just kind of speculating on. This there's there's some good historical research that shows that that literacy among poor people wasn't an absolute. Now, it was very high at the time. Uh, I will grant you that, you know, it's, and this was particularly true among among Gentiles. 
um, of, of the slave class in particular uh, because they just had no access to any kind of education of this sort. But that was not true for the Jews. Even though they, they might have had lowly stations in life, they were brought up in a tradition uh, that passed on education. And um, especially with, with Greek and even Hebrew, it's, it's entirely, I've heard scholars argue that it's entirely possible that St. Peter, Peter not only wrote, not only spoke Greek and Hebrew, but wrote both in Greek and Hebrew, and which would make sense because he penned uh, a couple of epistles for us, right? Um, he was he was Mark's uh, primary witness, according to uh, Richard Bachman. So, uh, so I don't think that's entirely founded for for Stanley to make that that argument. Um, absolutely, that well, first of all, it's just completely untrue that they had no Bible. They had a Bible. It was called the Old Testament. I mean, you look at. You, I mean, just a, a quick survey of the Gospels shows Jesus referring again and again and again and again to the Scriptures. The New Testament writers, Paul, all the writers of the general epistles, um, refer to, as it is written in the Scriptures, don't you know that it's written? These sorts of things. They had a Bible. It was called the Old Testament. And what did Jesus say about the, the Old Testament in Luke 24? That all of Moses and the prophets, and later on in the, in the same chapter, um, the Psalms testified of him. See, so so they had they had the gospel in the form of the Old Testament. It just got fleshed out in a more uh, narr- in a more narrative setting in the Gospels and in a more didactic way uh, in, in the epistles. So they had the Bible. And on top of that, um, once Jesus had rose from the dead, it seems pretty evident that they started uh, composing writings. Again, I, I refer to 1 Corinthians 15 a lot. Well, that that writing was creedal material that was written down that, that so people could memorize it two and three years after Jesus was raised. We have the entirety of the New Testament composed for us by the early church fathers before uh, Christianity was made legal in the Edict of Milan by Constantine. So, so this idea that they had no Bible, this sort of thing is it, it's a it's an argument that does not hold uh, does not hold historical water. It just doesn't carry the water historically. Uh, and the arguments can be made that some of these disciples, even though they were of low stature, um, were literate. I mean, obviously Saint Luke was one of Jesus's followers, and he was very literate. He he, he is referred to as a doctor in the scriptures. Saint Paul, same thing, very literate. Um, and they relied on the on the written word and the spoken word and their capacity to memorize um, and, and pass on tradition by word of mouth. Uh, and, and so the idea that they didn't have any scriptures, which again, St. Peter refers to St. Paul's writings as the scriptures. Um, and you can look that up in Second uh, Peter, is, I, I believe. But the point being, they had the Bible. They had the scriptures, God, God's word to them. So to say that they didn't have anything and that they were relying completely on something else is disingenuous at best. All right, so let's just establish that right away. And yet these men and women turned the world upside down. They are the reason that we're here today worshiping Jesus and they never held a Bible because there was no Tabiblia, the Bible. 
until the first, I mean, excuse me, until the fourth century. So again, that's just not true. That that is factually inaccurate. Now, what Stanley is referring to here is is uh, Codex Sinaiticus, which is the first time all of the Bible was brought together and put in one codex. So it's it's not telling the whole story to say, well, we didn't have a Bible before the first century because that was the first time the whole Bible was brought together and put in one binding. Well, that's complete nonsense because again, we know from the writings of of the the anti-Nicene fathers, which is the church fathers really before the year 313 AD, 4th century, when Constantine made Christianity legal, we have enough references to the New Testament to reconstruct the New Testament from those church fathers. This was before Christianity was even legal. Christianity's thrived and survived on the biblical scriptural text before it was put together in Codex Sinaiticus. It's a a complete misrepresentation of history for Stanley to say this. Now, he may be saying it out of ignorance. I'll give him that. Uh, But he also... (laughs) The other option is he's just not telling the truth here. Uh, Either way, it's not right. What happened... What did they believe? What did they know that we don't know? Why is it that you are so quickly and perhaps have been persuaded so easily to walk away from faith because of a book that didn't exist when Christianity began? Just something to think about. Now, 22 years ago, 22 years ago, a group of us got together and started this church that eventually became these these churches. And the thing that drove us is that we wanted to be known for resisting things that make the church unnecessarily resistible. And so 22 years ago, we embraced new styles of worship, new styles of teaching, new styles of communication, new styles of, of children's ministry, different kind of architecture. We just said, we decided if there's anything that's unnecessarily in the way of people coming to faith or understanding faith or even exploring faith, we want to get rid of it. We want to make the setting more appealing. We want to make it easier for people to listen. We want to make the church a little bit less detached from the real world. And so we work very hard to do that. And some of you have been with us on this journey all along the way. And then about nine or 10 years ago, about 10 years ago, actually, I saw something that um, I felt like we should start resisting. Um, in order to remain irresistible, in order to keep the doors wide open and to you know, make the, the first steps on the ladder, keep the low rungs on the ladder visible and easy for people, um, I noticed something that I thought we needed to address. And it had nothing to do with how we did church. It had everything to do with how we talk about the Bible. And specifically, or along with that, what we point to as the foundation of faith, which for most Christians, unfortunately, is the Bible. All right, so, it, I mean, I could be wrong here, but Stanley seems to be saying that the Bible is an obstacle to faith. And we need to remove that obstacle to faith. And I, and I think that's precisely his argument, unfortunately. Instead of equipping his people with, a, with apologetic information like I just gave you about Holy Scripture and saying, hey, look, you, you might have thought this and you, you, you may think these things in the Bible or you, you've, been, you've had your faith shaken because you haven't been able to defend some, sort of, some portion of the Scripture, etc., etc. Um, instead of giving them the tools to defend their faith, 
and Holy Scripture on uh, upon which uh, the faith is founded. And I'm going to get to describe that. It is connected to the resurrection, no question. But but both are foundational. I mean, after all, where do we learn of the resurrection from Holy Scripture? So if Holy Scripture isn't reliable, then we really can't even begin to defend the resurrection. Because we get all the information we need to defend the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15, which is in the Bible. It doesn't work out very well that way. If you separate, you can't separate the resurrection from Holy Scripture. And again, I heard Todd Wilkin and our friend Pastor Chris Roseboro talking about this on a podcast, I don't know, probably last year, two years ago, where Stanley's kind of given the same same lecture. He's like I said, he's kind of trying to ease everybody into this whole idea of, hey, let's abandon the Scripture. <clears throat> Or you don't really have to worry about defending the scripture in order to be to be a Christian, um, and and what would it be like? Is what they said. What would it be like if Stanley were to replace the words "the Bible" with God's word, with God's voice? Because that's what the Bible is. It's God's voice, and we're going to hear Stanley say something astonishingly alarming, just flooring. Uh, about the nature and the character of Holy Scripture later on. Let's continue for now. So about 10 years ago, because of something I saw that I'll describe in just a minute, I changed the way I talked about the Bible in my messages and in my sermons. And um, I didn't change what I believe. And I didn't get up and announce it. I didn't get up and say, from now on, I'm not gonna say this. I'm not gonna say that. I'm gonna begin using this terminology. I just made the change. I didn't tell anybody. And year after year after year, I've been doing this. In fact, I don't think anybody's really noticed, but I think it's helped me remove some of the obstacles to faith for people who are outside the faith looking in and for those who have left and perhaps would like to try to get back in. I th- okay, so let me just clue you in right here. And this is brute honesty. What is attracting people to North Point Church is Andy Stanley's charisma and his speaking ability. They're not listening to a blessed word he says. Because if they were... They would not be a part of North Point. And I can almost assure you, knowing how megachurches work, there's he, he is doing better than most, I'll grant you, at keeping more people coming in the door than are going out the door. But I can assure you there's been a number of people that have walked out the door because they actually were listening to what Stanley said. They disagreed with it. Nobody would listen to them about their complaints. And they said, hit the road. You know, if you if you don't really like what Pastor Stanley's doing, then maybe this isn't the church for you. Is probably the speech they got. On top of that, Stanley is building his legacy at North Point upon his father's legacy, Charles Stanley. Uh, that was probably pretty helpful to have that, and so he has access to all kinds of technology, funds, and talent in order to attract people with a very good Christian rock and roll smoke and light show. All right, now you give me all that. Now, I don't know if I could, that's the only thing, is I'm not sure I could fulfill the charismatic speaker part of it, but I did it in a mega church myself with teenagers pretty well. And you could ask any one of those teenagers today, hey, do you remember anything that Matt said when he was your pastor? And they probably couldn't recall one thing. But they could remember, man, he was a really good speaker. He was very charismatic. He really you know, made us feel like he, you know, he was one of us, and we had great music, man. It was loud and rock, you know, that's the stuff they would have remembered. And that's that's what that's what pop evangelical Christianity attracts, and that's how it attracts. And again, it's a revolving door type of thing. Uh, people leave because of the doctrine, I, I, and I think that's probably a 
smaller number than the people that leave that just get bored. They say, oh, yeah, well, you know, I've been here three, four, five years, and yeah, I'm kind of over this. It's really not much else to it, and they move on. Uh, and then you get a, a few that are that are dedicated, and then you just try to keep piling more in to keep the numbers up so you can keep, you know, keep the balls spinning. Um, but the real tragedy in all of, all of this is something like a Bart Ehrman, who's talking with the Sam Harris, a Bart Ehrman who was raised in this kind of Christianity, who was taught this way, who wasn't well catechized, who wasn't taught how to properly defend Holy Scripture, wasn't taught the philosophical reasons why we need God's voice, wasn't taught a proper defense of the resurrection that is drawn directly from Holy Scripture, by the way. That's what happened to Bart Ehrman. One contradiction at Princeton, he's gone. He's off to the races to now become what he claims to be as agnostic and I would call atheist. And then he goes on Sam Harris's program, and Sam Harris is looking at all this, including men like Andy Stanley, looking at men like Bart Ehrman and go, this is all a complete sham. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to hear a pastor stand in the pulpit and speak like this to an audience of 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 the size of North Point, because men like Sam Harrison are are listening to Andy Stanley speak, and they go, "These guys don't even believe what they're saying. They can't defend it either." So obviously, Christianity is completely indefensible. See, we retreat, we retreat, and we retreat, and we retreat. And so, what's going to be next for Stanley? What's he going to do when he's confronted by a man like Sam Harris? And and he even mentions Sam Harris in the sermon, believe it or not, which is a little bit scary. Because Sam Harris doesn't buy the resurrection. And and if if Andy Stanley can't articulate a proper defense of the resurrection from the scriptures to Sam Harris with conviction, and then from there go on to defend the scriptures as God's voice, as a philosophical necessity for us, then he's going to eventually succumb to denying the resurrection, which Rob Bell did in his last book. As you'll recall, if you if you don't remember that, go back and listen to the podcast we did on Rob Bell's book. See, that's where this is leading. How far is Stanley going to retreat? He's already pretty much told us that Holy Scripture is a barrier to faith. When will the time come when Andy Stanley finally says, "Well, you know, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection part, that's a that's an obstacle to faith, and we need to just let go of that." And be willing to embrace kind of a spiritual resurrection or a metaphorical resurrection or these sorts of things. I, I, I just don't see with the trajectory he's on and the step he's taking here in this very sermon that, that that's not an eventuality. All right. Okay. So now I'm preaching and ranting. So we should probably go on. I think that it's helped us as a group of churches become a little bit less resistible. So now I want to talk about it. The reason I want to talk about it is because I would like Christians everywhere and I would like communicators everywhere and pastors and teachers everywhere to at least consider what we've done as a group of churches as we continue to try to make it easier and easier and easier for people to embrace faith. So what is it that I saw that caused me to be a little bit concerned? What is it that I saw that caused me to change my approach to how I talk about the Bible and specifically the foundation of faith? And here's what I saw. I think it was in 2009, maybe 2010. I saw a YouTube video of one of the new atheists, and that may not be a phrase that's familiar to you. There are are four men that wrote several books, a whole bunch of books actually, but four kind of outstanding 
books right after 9-11. And all four of these gentlemen um, came out saying, hey, the problem isn't Islam. The problem is religion, that religion is what's wrong, that the root of all, the root of most evil is actually religion. And uh, these books sold millions and millions of copies. Um, they became, you know, standard lecturers all over in academia, especially on college campuses. And so I'm watching a YouTube video of one of these new atheists um, basically dismantle traditional Christianity, dismantle the Old Testament, you know, undermine everything that's basically would be considered a major tenet of Christianity. And although the message wasn't new, I mean, people have been doing this forever, although the message wasn't new, but combined with the events following 9-11, combined with the sort of anti-Christian and specifically anti-religious sentiment that was growing in our country, and then combined with the internet, it struck me that the Achilles heel of our modern version of faith was about to be exploited in a way that threatened the faith of the next generation. Now, there have been atheists around forever, and there's been smart people writing, you know, intelligent books and asking really good questions about the Bible for a long, long time. But these things came together, and in my mind, it was like the perfect storm, and it was the perfect storm because for a long time, for a long time, our modern version of Christianity has had an Achilles heel. But it hasn't been exploited because, for the most part, people had respect for the Bible, and even if you didn't have respect for the Bible, nobody was really talking about it in disrespectful ways. But that has changed. So consequently, what has been true for a long time has been about to be exposed. My biggest concern is this group right here because we send them out into the world with a Sunday school faith that is not gonna stand up against the onslaught that is becoming more and more prevalent in our country. And the good news is there is a good answer to this. Okay, and so, <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, the Achilles heel of Christianity is the Bible. That, that's what Andy Stanley just said. And, I, and I'm not watching this, but I'm assuming he splashed up a picture of the teenagers to say that, that this generation is exposed to that. And so instead of saying, okay, why don't we catechize these children? Why don't we teach them how to defend Holy Scripture? Beginning with the resurrection, grant you, beginning with the resurrection, teach them how to defend Holy Scripture? Nah, never mind that. Let's just throw out Holy Scripture as an Achilles heel to Christianity. And say, you know what, kids, don't worry about it if you can't defend Scripture. It's not defensible. Don't try to defend it. Just defend the resurrection and we'll retreat to there. The Bible is Christianity's Achilles heel and we needed to abandon it and retreat to only defending the resurrection. How Again, how are you even going to do that with this without the Scripture? This literally makes no sense. And if anybody with any modicum of understanding of what Stanley is saying would would flee from him at this point. I mean, he's been giving these sermons for years now, trying to ease people into this. And um, look, it's time to go. He's done. He is abandoning Holy Scripture here. And by the way, Pastor Stanley, by the way, I am not a bit worried about sending the teenage children that sit uh, in my Bible class on a Sunday morning out into the world with a, quote, Sunday school faith because the stuff I'm teaching them is how to defend their faith. And, and, that's, and that's just the icing on the cake. They've been taught this stuff since birth. They are well catechized and well taught, and I don't have a worry that they're going to step out into the world with their Sunday school faith. I would be worried about the children coming out of your church with a Sunday school faith, yes, I would absolutely be worried about that because you're not teaching them 
Holy Scripture the way it should be taught. So yes, you can worry about your your children stepping out into the world with their Sunday school faith because that's going to be torn apart like ravenous ravenous by ravenous wolves. Just like Bar Ehrman's faith was torn apart by one contradiction in St. Mark's Gospel as compared with the other Gospels. One contradiction. Just that simple. Why? Because he wasn't well catechized. He wasn't well taught. He wasn't taught at an early age how to defend Holy Scripture both reasonably, historically, and philosophically. And children can learn this. So, I'm not worried about our children in my church stepping out into the world with the Sunday school faith because what we teach in Sunday school is what needs to be taught. A little bit passionate about this, as you can see. But anyway, um, Stanley is just, he's abandoning scripture here and we're going to see this evidenced pretty soon. Because the Achilles heel, the Achilles heel that again hasn't been exploited, I don't think, until now, is a misapplication of a very important Reformation concept. Now we're not going to get lost in Reformation history, but I just want to make one real quick comment. And that the com- the, the, the concept that's been distorted is the idea of sola scriptura. Uh, real quick little history: in the 16th century, there was a Reformation, and the Reformation leaders basically rescued the reformers rescued Christianity from a tradition driven um, word of the church version of Christianity and they said no the Pope isn't the final authority tradition isn't the final authority scripture is the final authority scripture alone scripture will be the final authority for the church and some great things happen as a result but over time the idea of solar sola scriptura which is you know scripture alone is the authority has been taken to mean that the scripture or in our case we would say the bible is actually the foundation of our faith there is a difference between something that is seen as an authority for you to live by and something that is considered the foundation of your faith or your faith system but over time these two ideas have merged it's nobody's fault it's just the way the world is it's just the way that church leaders began talking about the bible and so many of you i'm in this group we were raised to believe that the foundation of our faith is the Bible. That as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. And if all of it's not true, then none of it can be trusted. It's a house of cards. And so you... Whoa, okay. So there you go. Obviously, Andy Stanley does not trust all of Scripture. Not sure what else to say after that. If we can't found our faith on the Bible, um, there, there's just, I just don't see any other explanation than Andy Stanley has said, we don't found your faith on the Bible. It's not reliable. Holy Scripture is not reliable. I mean, that is a major tenet of Protestant Christian faith. And it, he refers to the Reformers. The reason the Reformers wanted to put Holy Scripture forth as the sole authority for the faith was because philosophically we need this. We've talked about this many times. If we don't have Holy Scripture as the ultimate authority, somebody's going to take that place. In the church, unfortunately, it was the Pope. And the reformers, God be praised, came along and said, No, a man, men do not have ultimate authority. God has ultimate authority. I mean, think of our country. This is something our country is founded on. 
that God gave unalienable rights to people. And his authority cannot be challenged. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the authority of Scripture. And Andy Stanley, in so many words, just said, the Bible is a, is, is a bad place upon which to build your faith. It's not reliable. If you build your faith upon Holy Scripture, it will crumble. He called it a house of cards. Now, he's done this before. But he's, he's doing it probably more emphatically than I've ever heard him do it. You have grown up perhaps not looking over there and not listening to that and don't read that book. A little bit of fear that you might learn something that pulls out the bottom card and your whole faith tower comes tumbling down. Well, you're going to be fine probably. But I don't think the next generation is unless we help them step back on a more solid foundation as it relates to faith. Because, uh, you know, if Genesis isn't true, well, then the Bible isn't true. If all of it isn't true, then you can't say the Bible's true. And if the Bible's not true, then why would I depend on it? Why would I look to it as a source of faith or really as a source of anything? And the new atheists, these four extraordinarily intelligent men, and they're not evil. I don't think they're bad. They just have a different worldview and they're really good writers. And two of them are extraordinary communicators. Actually, they're all really good communicators. Um, I read their books. Um, I, Sam Harris, I, I quote Sam Harris all the time. One of my favorite quotes he said on his podcast, he said that we should pay attention to the frontiers of our ignorance. Pay attention to the frontiers of your ignorance. I think that's a great statement for all of us. But he's an atheist, has a different worldview. So I don't think these are bad or evil people. They just see the world differently. And, and. Right, they're no more bad or evil than any of the rest of us sinners. I, I would agree. Maybe put, put that caveat on things. There it is, the, the Sam Harris quote. If he's listening to Sam Harris, um, yeah, I'm again, I'm just thinking he's pretty much going to go the way of Rob Bell and Bart Ehrman, and eventually the retreat is going to go back to the resurrection, and it's going to be, you know, uh, the idea of the resurrection being this spiritual, metaphorical resurrection, and... Yeah, how how far do we retreat on this, I guess, would be the question. And they have attacked persuasively and effectively the credibility and the morality of our Bibles. Yeah, um, not my Bible. Not persuasively. Not credibly. They, no. No, they haven't, Pastor Stanley. If you understand the arguments, if you've studied these things, if you understand how to defend your faith properly. Um, so again, this is either out of ignorance or out of malice. I'm not sure what other choices there are. I would hope it's out of ignorance on Pastor Stanley's part that he is not saying... What he should be doing is standing up before his congregation and saying, these men, although they sound persuasive... Although they are very eloquent speakers and they are very learned men, they're very intelligent, we can defend the resurrection and Holy Scripture against these charges. There are good arguments against this. And here they are. Where's that sermon? That's the sermon that needs to be preached. Now, I'm going to guess... And I think this is right, that Stanley just simply does not know the arguments. He simply hasn't studied apologetics enough, and he's not willing to preach it from the pulpit. 
He's preaching. He's preaching an apologetics of retreatism. I get if that's even a word. If I can phrase it that way, just okay. When they attack this, and we can't really figure out how to defend it, yeah, you know, don't don't look to anybody else and how to defend this. Just just retreat back to the next thing. And then when that's attacked, um, you know, we'll figure out how to defend that then. And maybe we'll have to make another retreat. And maybe then we can settle on something. Whatever. How far are you going to retreat? Are you going to retreat to the point where Bart Ehrman's at right now? Um, because that's the trajectory of all this. They've, they've attacked the credibility. You can't believe it. There's all these problems. And the morality. I mean, the, the message that's sweeping college campuses is it's not just that religion is wrong. Religion is bad. That the God of the Old Testament is a moral monster. And all it takes is a little bit of that. And faith, the house of cards, comes tumbling down. So, for the next three weeks, we are going to look at what served as the foundation of faith for the first century church. And we're going to look at their view and how they began to understand the Old Testament as well. Because I'm convinced, and I hope I can convince you, that we should take our cues about the foundation of faith. We should take our cues about how to approach the Old Testament from the men and the women who were closest to the action, the first century, first followers of Jesus. Right, and where are you going to get that information, Pastor Stanley? There's, there's no way to access that other than the Scriptures, and if they're not reliable, how can you rely on the Scriptures? See, see the problems coming in here? And when we take our cue from them, and if we can help the next generation take their cue from them, if we can help our kids and our grandkids take their cue from this group, you end up with the endurable, defensible, unassailable version of faith, which was the original version. So, here we go. We're gonna pick up the story where we left off. Jesus was raised from the dead. He ascended to be with the Father. And his disciples are in Jerusalem figuring out what's next. Right, and where did you get this information? He he just spent 10 minutes distancing himself and Christianity from the scriptures? He's just said they're not reliable. How can we, you know, if he's getting this information from the scriptures, how how can he rely on this? I mean, if Genesis isn't true, how can we rely on the Gospels? He's going to have to present some evidence to say that, well, while we can't really hold to a six-day creation and it's not important that we do anyway, we can rely on the Gospels. Give me that logical line of argument. I mean, a guy like Sam Harris would completely tear this apart, and he does. A guy like Bart Ehrman would completely tear this apart, and he would. You have got to be able to defend the whole of Holy Scriptures, of Holy Scripture. And so far, all we've heard from Stanley is it's a house of cards, something that's an obstacle to the church, an Achilles heel, something we need to we need to distance ourselves from. So where is he getting this information? He's not getting it from anywhere else but from the Bible. Makes no sense. Now, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. Luke, Luke not only wrote the Gospel of Luke, Luke, Luke also wrote the document that we call Acts. And in the book of Acts, we are, we're basically, he basically documents the next 30 years of what happened following the resurrection. 
And the interesting thing is the very first thing or just about the very first thing that the disciples did after Jesus rose from the dead is they got together and they decided they needed to replace Judas because Judas... All right, so look, Pastor Stanley, sorry, the, the popular scholarship says that Acts was written way after Luke. So while we traditionally put Luke and Acts together, either you're going to have to date Luke way up there, way past all of this, and so it makes it completely unreliable, but you're basing your whole argument off of Luke-Acts, and it's maybe a century. That's that's what we learned at Claremont, that Luke-Acts was probably written about 125 AD. No evidence for that whatsoever, by the way. Just the fact that Luke was an eloquent writer and the doctrine ha- ha- happened to be uh, more advanced than the other uh, gospels, you know, just this internal evidence nonsense of just really no evidence at all. Um, by the way, you know, that, that whole internal evidence, I mean, go look at my Federalist articles, go on, go on laymanstransradio.org. Look at my, my articles on Justin Center. Look at my articles on, um, uh, steadfast Lutherans. And then look at my articles on, on the Federalist and then compare all of them and say, would, you know, and if you didn't know it was me that wrote them all, would you say that the same author wrote all of those articles? You probably would not <laughs> because they're all very disparate articles. And I have several different writing styles that I write from when I'm trying to tackle a particular subject. Okay. So that's how they determine these things. So Pastor Stanley's going to have to give us some evidence that, that Luke actually wrote Acts, um, that it wasn't this very, very late docu- document that really couldn't be relied upon because it was written probably almost a century after Christ's resurrection. So you really can't rely on that, can we? Judas betrayed the whole crowd. Judas killed himself, and they figured, they decided, we can't have 11, we need 12. And so Luke, who said he thoroughly investigated all of these things, both in his gospel and in what he brings us in terms of what happened after the resurrection, Luke says, here's how the conversation went. They got together and they said, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus was living among us. They're trying to figure out who are we gonna replace Judas with? And one of the things that you need to kind of get out of your head if you grew up in church is Jesus didn't walk around with 12 guys tagging along behind him as we saw in our previous series. Jesus walked around with an enormous crowd tagging along behind him. Okay, so you would only think that if you were catechized in a pop evangelical church. If you were well catechized and taught the scriptures properly, you would know an, an enormous amount of people followed Jesus right up about until the time that he fed the was it the 4,000 or 5,000? I can't remember. From St. John's Gospel, when many left him. And Jesus asked St. Peter, Will you, and I'm paraphrasing, do you also intend to leave? And, and St. Peter said, made this magnificent confession, uh, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And pretty much everybody else left him, except for the 12. So if you were taught properly, you would know these things. Uh yeah, I'm not sure what else to say about that. From the dead. Freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then he references one of David's Psalms as if to say, look, us Jewish people, we should have seen this coming. This was predicted long ago. Our prophets foretold of a time that God would do something unusual. And then he says to this... Okay, so so uh, he says, you know, the, the people didn't have the scripture, yet Peter is referencing... A Psalm of David here, according to St. Luke, which is written way later than any of this. And yeah, this makes absolutely no sense. He's not making a cogent argument here 
that we should distance ourselves from the scripture and not worry about whether the scripture is reliable, but that the resurrection is reliable. I, you just can't have one without the other. You just cannot. Um, let me let him go on a bit here more uh, a bit more here. We're gonna have to cover this a few weeks. There's a several sermons uh, in this series. I'm gonna listen to them, see if they're worth bringing to you. But I think this pretty much sums it up. Uh, but there's one portion that I have to play before we get out of here. Let me see if I can get a bit more of this part in. Crowd, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we talking about his Christian disciples, Jesus following friends, and we are witnesses of this. And when the people heard this, when the people heard this, they were so convicted and they said to Peter and the other apostles, ah, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Repent means change your mind. These weren't people who needed to turn away from sin. It wasn't- Okay, you know, yes. These were people that needed to turn away from sin. They had Jesus crucified. That's what cut them to the heart. They crucified the Lord of glory. That's what Peter preached to them. That was their sin. They were in need of repentance, not not of just from unbelief to belief. Now, that was there, of course. But what cut them to the heart was they crucified God. They crucified the Lord of glory, and they were cut to the heart because of that. And they realized, oh my gosh, we killed God in the flesh. I mean, can you imagine that? That's the position we are in as as sinners. And this is how this is to be preached to people. That you, you people sitting there at North Point, by your sin, crucified the Lord of glory. And that will cut people to the heart. That's a law preaching, which draws people to the cross. Stanley softens it. It's unfortunate. That kind of repentance. It was you need to change your mind about who Jesus is and who Jesus was. And Yeah, wrong. It's not you need to change your mind about who Jesus is and who Jesus was. It, it is you. I mean, this is, uh, this is arguably the most soft peddling of the gospel I've heard from pop evangelicals. You need to change your mind about who Jesus is and who Jesus was? No, you need to repent of your sin. You crucified the Lord of glory. That's what St. Peter preached that day. And he's soft-pedaling this. Once you've changed your mind, you need to publicly identify with Jesus by being baptized. And then he perverts baptism completely. And I'm not going to go into the whole, the whole baptism thing. Publicly identify with Jesus by being publicly baptized. No. That's not what St. Peter teaches. St. Peter teaches in his epistles if Andy Stanley knew his scriptures, which kind of think he does, that St. Peter teaches that baptism now saves you. Should have preached baptism differently there. It's not identifying. Anyway, let's go on because I've got to get this, uh, this, this portion in that's particularly egregious before we quit here. And the text says that many, many, many people that day embraced Jesus as Savior and turned away from their unbelief. The the point being, the very first Christian sermon preached was not about what Jesus taught. The very first sermon, Christian sermon ever preached after the resurrection was about the resurrection of Jesus. Next big event, 
Peter. Yeah, no, it was about the fact that those people crucified Jesus. That's what it was about. This man was the Messiah. You crucified him. What are you going to do with that? That's the sermon. Okay, so before we run out of time, I got to get to this next part. So let's get to it. That the first century believers, they weren't even called Christians yet. That would come later. They embrace what I want you to embrace and what our children must embrace and what our grandchildren must embrace. They embrace the first century version of faith. They embrace the standalone version. I don't need a book to prop up my faith. I, I don't need you to explain creation to me to prop up my faith. I, the whole Noah thing, it's fascinating. I don't know, but that's not what props up my faith. Christianity can stand on its own two nailed, scarred resurrection feet. The foundation of your faith and mine is not a book, it is an event. That the Bible did not create Christianity. Christians eventually created the Bible. And then- Okay, so there it is. Christians eventually created the Bible. Yeah, um, if 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 I'm still hanging on by my fingernails at North Point Church, I'm done. Christians created the Bible. Maybe that was a slip of the tongue. I, I I'm not sure. Not sure what to say about that. And and again, replace this with God's word, God's voice, and all this kind of starts to completely fall apart. So, while I understand uh, Stanley's sentiment here that defending Holy Scripture is a difficult job. It's not easy. It takes a lot of research, knowledge, and understanding. But instead of imparting that to his congregation... He's just swept that all aside and said, you know what? We don't need to be teaching this to people. We don't need to defend the Bible. We need to retreat back, just defend the, the resurrection. Okay, do we defend the, defend the bodily resurrection? How? How are we going to defend the bodily resurrection? Can't do it without Scripture. Um... Yeah, that that line of Christians, what was it, created the Bible? That's just that's jaw dropping. Uh, that that's the point at which you go, okay, well, uh, you know, I'm looking for Christianity, and I'm looking for God's voice. I need God's voice. Um, Christianity, yes, foundationally is based on an event that is described by God's own voice in Holy Scripture. Um, I need God's voice, and if Holy Scripture doesn't have it, then I guess I need to go somewhere else to look for God's voice. Because if this is just a man-made creation by those who witnessed the resurrection, then it doesn't carry any weight, really. It doesn't carry any authority. Um, and... It's not reliable. I mean, we can't even rely on it to witness the resurrection. 
to us. So at any rate, we may get in, in, into this a little bit more next week. I, I just wanted you to hear that quote. I, I'm just I'm still flabbergasted by it. Maybe but maybe you can tell that. Um, but I, I'm going to finish listening. To, I mean, I've listened to this sermon. There's some more maybe I need to to bring out here. Um, and then there's two other sermons in this series. Um, it's astonishing what's going on. Uh, and amazing because Stanley has managed to do what Rob Bell could not do. He's got a massive following down there in Georgia and he's going to keep it. And these people are going to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're just going to keep kind of almost frog in the, in the kettle type of idea. Um, it's pretty amazing. At any rate, thanks for listening. Can you well project as always? KNNA The Cross, Pirate Christian Radio. And, uh, well, yeah, we'll keep after this stuff. Um, Stanley's arguing the resurrection to pull you away from the scriptures, all while he should be arguing the resurrection to pull you toward the scriptures. Um, that's really what's going on here. But, at any rate, we'll save it for next week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. It brings salvation to those who believe. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. Tell me I'm a sinner and Christ died for me. I don't want to know about what you did last week on your summer vacation. What you saw, where you went, or how much it cost. Instead, won't you tell me all the words that give me salvation? How he lived and how he died for me on the cross. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. Give me the good news of God's only son. Hey.